0: Hello, and welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. If you enjoy this conversation, there are a few different ways you can support us. You can buy a book from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, including the title discussed in this episode, a link to which you'll find in the show notes. There, you'll also find our Year of Reading subscription, as well as Shakespeare and Company totes, apparel, mugs and other gifts, all shipped from Paris to wherever you are in the world. You can also become a friend of Shakespeare and Company, a programme we set up to get the bookshop through this difficult year. Membership gets you access to exclusively produced content throughout 2021, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Contributors so far include Molly Crabapple, Aishan Hutchinson, Olivia Lang, Deborah Levy, Katika Nair, Clemence Poésy, Natalie Portman and George Saunders. You can find out more on friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. Finally, you can rate this podcast wherever you listen, and if you have time, leave a review. It can really help spread the word. I'll be back at the end. Until then, thank you for listening and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Monument Maker by David Keenan has barely been out a few weeks, but it has already almost become a platitude to describe this thunker of a novel as monumental. So let's take a slightly different route and compare it to one of the French cathedrals that feature in its early chapters. It's not just the size of the novel that makes us draw this comparison, although that is impressive. It's also the combination of preternatural artistry and immense labour that went into its construction. Like a cathedral, Monument Maker took David Keenan many years to build. And although he has never admitted as much, I can't help but imagine that several people died in the process. Like a cathedral, this book can be looked up at in despair or down from in awe. Let's go further. Like a Cathedral, Monument Maker is a book not just with a vast narthex and confounding transept, but with all manner of crypts and hidden passages, as well as staircases that spiral upwards, sometimes literally into the heavens. Some of its paragraphs, just like a cathedral's frescoes, are works of infinite precision, while others read as if they were restored by Cecilia Jimenez and are all the more transcendent for it. David Keenan holds the same reverence for the words in the prayer books as for the graffiti on the pews, as for the scrap of a jazz mag brought in on a parishioner's shoe and so lays all of it bare. And if by the end of this introduction you feel like I've told you almost nothing about the book, that is perhaps because, like all great cathedrals, all great monuments, the beauty of Monument Maker is ultimately ineffable and has to be seen, or in this case read, to be believed. David Keenan, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast.
1: Wow, thank you, Ada. I'm so psyched to be here. <laughs>
0: no, it's great to have you here, man, and it's... Um... Great to be recording this uh, in view of Notre Dame as well. Yeah. You know, I, I can't think of a more sort of appropriate setting for for talking about this book. Um, I suppose where I want to begin is I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat a little bit because um, I was trying to think of a way into this book that I could kind of convey to uh, to our listeners, and it's such a multi-threaded, many-layered, many-genre book that. I was having difficulty thinking which thread which layer to start with so I thought I would turn it back on you and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the the origin of Monument Maker. Was there one particular strand, one particular thread or maybe just one particular image that set the whole thing
1: off? Um, There was an image of a stone, a first stone. I I realised I've always been interested in things like memorial devices You know, I think Mm -hmm. my first book was This Is Memorial Device. And I began thinking about, you know, that when you look down how the universe is constructed, it's an elephant upon an elephant upon an elephant upon a turtle, blah, blah, blah. And I wanted wanted to think this concept of the first stone, the thing that holds everything up. And then I became obsessed by the idea of the flesh, of of the preserving Mm. of the flesh. And then I began to think the alchemical stone the, alchem- the, alchemical- the alchemical stone is a stone that somehow can work in consort with other elements, And I had this big breakthrough that the moon was the alchemical stone. Because it's a stone that literally floats, so this idea of the floating stone was one image, mm. and then the miracle of flesh was the other. That the the, the, the the how there was no shortage of flesh, how bodies are const- constantly born again, and I began to conflate these two miracles: the miracle of the flesh is constantly born again, and the miracle of the first stone, the stone that floats, and just these vague images in my head. It was like the writing was activated by images, and certainly not by ideas. And also, the book was written backwards, actually. So, and really, mm. the first the first uh, sort of thread is the is the final, the second final appendix. It's As Above, So Below, and Sons of the mm-hmm. Desert. That was actually the first thing that was written for the book. And that section alone, that section was actually called The Tomb of the Song. And that section alone was 120,000 words originally. But I don't oh, believe wow. in editing. I believe in destroying. So I, I basically <laughs> dissembled that cathedral pretty, pretty brutally. And I, I left it with just the thread of this one story. And from that, I then tracked backwards Right the way through the book until the first section, Saint Ile de France, which is the fleshiest section in a way, become mm-hmm. was the final section that I wrote. You know? So it starts for me, it ended with it with the flesh, and for the readers it begins with the flesh and goes to the stone, vice versa. Mm.
0: That's that's a really interesting kind of comparison as well, the flesh and the stone, because these are two things which are sort of fundamentally opposing images. You know, there is one which is soft and mortal and pliable and one that is you know potentially eternal or at least mm-hmm. you know very 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 durable and very sort of resistant to um to the elements and yet in your kind of project to to draw the draw a line between them in some way that seems to perfectly capture what you're doing generally and more broadly actually. With Monument Maker, it does seem to be a sort of a novel about drawing lines, about making connections, whether that be between elements, between substances, between epochs, or between art
1: forms or between philosophies. Does that does that ring true to you? Well, I mean, it is when people ask you what your books about. I mean, I've always wanted to say everything. But I literally hmm. tried to get Monument Maker to be about everything. I mean, ultimately, yes, I think it's a monument to the flesh. It's a cathedral of all summers and an attempt to re- to remember the disappeared, and so they and allow them to be with the dead. It's an, it's an extended mm-hmm. conversation I had with the dead over 10 years, I only came to realize that and it's completing that, I had, that there was traffic with the dead and and indeed I had been some kind of a instrument for them, some kind of vessel for them, because just like Frater Jim in the book, I, I felt the presence of the lines of dead behind my shoulders as I was finishing the book. But as I was finishing the book, I was writing that this is the very sensual beginning and this mm. was important for me as well. At the, the beginning, there's a lot of sex. There's a lot of sex. Mm. I, I did a thing with, at, with Edinburgh Book Festival the other day with lot uh, LARA Post, and she said there's a lot of cock in Monument Maker. <laughs> and, there is a lot of sex, and one of the reasons is, and and one of the things that I like, it starts with a lot, very, very, a lot of sensuality, a lot of sexual pasties mm. flitting between the stone and the flesh. But I had this idea, and it kind of derives from William Blake. that the sexual there's a a hierarchies of imagination and people sometimes Mm -hmm. say well i'm not a particularly imaginative person people i mean people say that and but what i realized is if you talk about the sexual imagination well, everyone's got that imagination. That's like the entry-level mm-hmm. imagination is sexual fantasy. So what I wanted to do, the book's a sort of mass hypnotism as well. The book itself was a sort of essential a, a disrobing and essential sort mm-hmm. of seduction as well. So it was while well, using all the, all the sensual imagery and also using sort of hypnotic, a sort of almost hypnotic biblical cadence, we sort of sweep you up in some kind of like it's almost like a textual orgasm we're heading for a little bit mm. and i feel as if we can catch you on the level of the sexual imagination then suddenly i drop the the, the ground from beneath it entirely and you drop into a whole different timeline but you've sort of been lulled into this very receptive imaginative state so i'm trying to work with other people's imagination so that we can both go deeper and we go deeper in a way i want you to read the book without seeing the words I literally want mm-hmm. that to happen. I want the books to be totally mm-hmm. transparent, and the rhythms and the words that I use are attempts for you to not, for you to see, for me to transmit this reality, for you to be in the in the place of imagination itself, because the place of imagination itself is a profound state of non-duality. It certainly, is for me when imagination speaks rather than imagination speaking to you. So I use a lot of the sexual imagery and these rhythms to get you into the point where imagination speaks as you're reading. Mm-hmm. That's really There's so much
0: in what you just said that I'd like to unpick, but just sticking with the idea of the sort of the sexual imagination at the moment, one thing that um, struck me and actually, uh, which feeds into uh, what you said about Lara Paulson's comment about there being a lot of cock in the book, mm-hmm. is that there were certain um, moments where, particularly at the beginning, where it did evoke this kind of, um, I suppose, the way that perhaps a writer like Henry Miller might have written about sex, but with a very important distinction um, which is that it was a very sort of refreshingly kind of inclusive sort of, it was both very masculine, but in no way sort of um, exclusionary of the kind of the feminine experience of sex. Like one of the, one of did I, Miller can be a wonderful um, writer to read, but I think there is definitely a sort of an absence of the, the female psyche and the female uh presence in the in the sexual act and in the sexual imagination in some of his work whereas one thing I found in Monument Maker and as I say I found deeply refreshing is that it was an incredibly kind of transcendent and therefore inclusive um, portrayal of sex and the sexual imagination
1: I mean you talk about it as a lot of cock but you know there are the, the, the cocks are involved with other genitals as well I I, <laughs> I like I like a sort of like I, I like a, a lustiness that's what I would term it, a lustiness. And it's not, mm-hmm. a, it's not it's not, exclusive to any sex, you know? And in a way, um, look, I'll be honest with you, a lot of women have told me that they've masturbated to my novels. And, and I take that as a, as a huge, as a huge compliment. I think that's absolutely beautiful, you know? And because I always remember... You know, when I grew up, I, I was really, I did read a lot of porn mags and I, I really liked mm-hmm. the stories. I liked the stories almost more than the photograph. I thought it was hornier in a way. And and that what that, that, that blew me away then was the, the, the actual physical effect that language can have on your body. Language can make you mm-hmm. come. It can give you an orgasm. It can send like tingles up your spine. I want my books to be sensual experiences for anyone who's mm-hmm. a sexual creature. I want them to be able to get some kind of sensual experience from that. And everyone's fucking, every every type of fucking is always in my books. And I always remember, when I was younger, I once, I hope my, my, my brother's never going to listen to this podcast, so I think I'm safe. This. <laughs> um, I remember uh, walking in accidentally in my brother's bedroom and him and one of his pals were hidden under sheets, underneath uh, some chairs, and they were both repeating the word fanny, 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 fanny. And I heard one of them say to the other, if you keep repeating it, your penis gets hard. And I was like, wow, they think it's the words that make you hard. And I was like, but it kind of is. And and I've always taken that lesson that I want you to kind of get off on the language as well. Mm. I want you to get down with it in full sexual experience, that kind of lusty experience. And just, I don't like writers that don't have sex in their books. A sexless book or a sexless writer, as a writer, I'm just not like what you read.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's also something um, I wonder. Just thinking of the kind of the, the 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 male urge, I guess, and particularly the kind of the male urge to orgasm and this sort of the um, the kind of I guess the kind of the grasping for for a sense of the eternal that that uh, that that often implies. I the sort of I wonder if that's also a connection to this idea of sort of building, uh, you know, cathedrals uh, which reach. Almost up into the heavens. Like, do you think there's something? There's a line that could be drawn then, almost like between the sort of the, um, yeah, the, the, the sexual urge and the this quest for eternity through that, and the quest for eternity through working stone and building these
1: monuments. Yes, it's that quest for kind of ultimate union, and I would see that moment of that moment of dissolving in mutual orgasm, that's the bit when you experience literally what I was talking about is the, um, the uh, imagination. Because the imagination, again, is this non-dual state, which is simply broadcasting, which is being. And when you're in that absolute... You know, I I, I am a huge fan of Alistair Crowley, and I, I took a lot from reading him over the years, and one of the most profound things I ever took from his writing was how he redefined the idea of, of, of change as being love. And he had this beautiful idea that everything is longing to unite with what it is not. In other words, mm-hmm. change itself is a, a sort of sexual dynamic. Change itself is long, constant longing, constant love. There's no stasis because everything's constantly falling in love with what it's not and wants to dissolve into what it's not. And the idea of having change is love. That is so beautiful to me. So then it underlines the nature of time as being love. Mm-hmm. You know? And so the whole book, there, there, there is, you know, the whole book is a, is a sort of, is a sort of eternal love play. It's a pointless mm-hmm. internal love play in one way because there's nowhere to be and nothing to do except play with love. Literally, mm-hmm. you know? Well, the one thing you have to do, actually, that I realise is that every one of us has some kind of duty to the dead and we have to mm-hmm. work it out. I think one of the big breaks I had with, with mm-hmm. uh, psychologically and magically was when I realised the big difference between uh, what Freud and, and, and what Jung had contributed to our thinking after the 20th century mm-hmm. and what Freud re- re- locates your ancestors in your immediate family. He thinks the big issue is your mum and dad. But that's so mm-hmm. local and small and tiny as if these are the things you need to resolve. But Jung relates your ancestors and what you need to deal with with the whole of the dead. And you're more mm-hmm. product of, whole of, the, of the whole of the dead than you are of your mother and father. And what an incredible thing. And what an incredible thing I have to do. First, to come to terms with the dead, to allow them to speak, and then to realise that you're about to take your place with them and hope that someone mm-hmm. will allow you to speak. And then you're right back to these whole ideas like last kind words, you know, see that my mm-hmm. grave is kept clean, things like that. And in a way, that's what I attempted to do with Monument Maker. I, I, like like Lawrence, to, to build my ship of the dead. Or like Charles mm-hmm. wilson says, I set, up, I set out across the sea. I set out in a box across the sea, which is an odd little, which I only began to realise after I'd done the book again, that the ship of death, the box across the sea, there's the cube. And Monument Maker, make travels through the rivers of the entire book. Yeah. You know what? It's, it's it's a box upon the sea. It's a ship of death, and it, and it seems to con- contain the head, the head that is dreaming the story, the head that keeps allowing mm-hmm. the story to be back, allows the story to be spoken again. Literally, the word in the box. Yeah. Now you only start to make some of these revelations out yourself after you finish the book. Same same with me.
0: It's um it's interesting you bring up Jung as well because um particularly I think in connection to the dead and also the imagination because I can't remember which of his um, writings it's in now, but one thing that always stayed with me from Jung was the, the phrase, at least how it's translated into English of um, whatever acts is actual. Um, I think it was, I think there was something to do with he received this uh, patient who had other, other of his colleagues that had had, had no success with, uh, with, with her at all with helping her. And in her notes, it said she she believes that she visits the moon. And all of the people who had uh, treated her before had taken the approach of kind of, okay, like, clearly you haven't visited the moon, so let's let's try and figure out what's going on here. Yeah. Whereas she sat down in Jung's consulting room and he said to her, well, tell me about the moon. Yeah. And I think there's just something really, there's something similar in what you're doing with, with Monument Maker, I think. This is sort of like affording a reality to the imagination, Um, which is not to say that, which by which I don't mean that the sort of the reality shouldn't be afforded or doesn't have it. And you're kind of, you're kind of tacking it on in some sort of artificial way, Mm. but in fact doing something, which I think actually comes very naturally to us. And as you, the way you described the sort of the sexual imagination earlier underlies this is that sort of the products of our imagination are very real and very, and act upon upon our
1: lives in, in a very in a very sort of substantial way. And they're not us. They're not us. I mean, I think of Extabeth. I think of Extabeth all the time. Extabeth, who was the star of my last book, who basically dictated mm-hmm. it, and who reappears here in several different guises, including as a talking mouth, a mouse during the Siege of Khartoum, which I definitely never saw coming. But, um, I totally agree hundred percent with young well, well you can say, well, x to beth is a projection of this or a symbol of this or stands for this or or blah 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 x to beth is x the Beth. x to beth mm-hmm. presents as x to beth, and so I listen to her as x the beth. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't immediately psychologize it. You you don't immediately reduce it to to these series of boxes that you have. Okay, I can put this and all experience, and that's that. That's a diminishing of it. And the other the yeah. other thing, the things that I've realized through becoming a writer is, I honestly believe it that I doubt my own existence and there's no such thing as free will. I mean, I mm-hmm. find that I, I'm almost taking the piss. Some things I think putting my name on these books, but you know. I've got to eat, so my name's going on it. But in a way, it's very hard to be able to take responsibility for these books. What I've learned to do is to get myself out of the way when these books start mm. to talk and let them speak, which is the way, I mean, you couldn't have set out to plan a book like Monument Maker. You know, I didn't sit down with point. I never sit down with points to be made or or, 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 or overall narrative arts or where I want to go. I would never allow that. I'd never allow... uh a single point to get in my head when I was right. And I'd be very weary of that because then I start, then you start interfering and maybe driving it in a certain way. So my my whole thing is involved with, it's about listening listening and knowing when, you're, when the correct voice is broadcasting and taking it down. But taking it down so specifically that you make sure you get the inflection. You don't change it around. You don't say, well, actually, grammatically, what I think you meant to say was, you get it down as it was spoken. And that requires deeper listening because the inner sensor mm-hmm. is always there. But the more you start to listen, the more you can't find yourself there. The more it's not you listening to it. There's not a whole lagoon of ideas that I then pick mm-hmm. and choose from. It is simply broadcast. Um, and it's uncanny and it can be an un- unnerving experience. And certainly, when I was writing Monument Maker over these 10 years, one of those years I didn't write because I wrote for the first year, I wrote two of the songs. I began to get in the, into the next section. I began to see it was going. I think I began to feel the presence of the dead, literally, but not having the, the capability or the tools or the, or, or, or or have or having the experience of any other writers talking to me about this potential experience, mm-hmm. not knowing what it was and feeling like I was maybe going a little bit mad. My wife noticed my behavior changing, I was becoming anxious. Mm-hmm. I was worried. Um, I had to take a year off and I came back to it mm-hmm. again. And that's when I began to realize that, um, yeah, Sometimes books are spoken, I think the best books the truest books, but probably literally all books ultimately are spoken out of the air, are literally spoken mm-hmm. out of the air. And that's kind of mind-blowing. It's really mind-blowing, but yep. that is 100% my experience of how books are written. And you know what? That's nice. how reality actually happens. Because right now, as I'm saying all these words, these words are just happening. There's not these mm-hmm. options of different lines and conversations back here that I'm picking and choosing from. I, I, yep. I In the book, I keep talking about how the word is, is, as is, yeah. is almost the only word you can trust, and I think that's what Jung is exactly talking about. As means mm-hmm. when Ex beth speaks, you listen to Ex beth Yeah, yeah, yeah. A day trip on bicycles to visit the Tadeusz Kozyuko Monument outside the village of Montenay-sur-Loire. Kozyuko, who was an architect and a builder of fortresses, a Polish national hero and a combatant in the American Revolutionary War. Kozyuko, whose body isn't even there at all, in this tomb or in any single place. His embalmed body, which was part of some kind of misconstrued memorialising, not to say a kind of attempt to spread his influence as far as possible to expand his protectorate by the separation of his organs and the transparent of the body, flitted between a church in Solithorne, Switzerland, some other stupid church in Krakow, and a crypt in Vavel Cathedral, his internal organs buried in a separate plot in a graveyard in Zukville, beneath a single memorial stone, and his poor, suffering heart, all enlarged in the tangle of his life, briefly on display in a terrible museum in Switzerland, before returning, still lonely, to a chapel in Warsaw's royal castle. Yuko, whose fake tomb this is. A simple door and an arc of stone. By a busy roadside. A door that would open onto the catacombs beneath the forest of Fontainebleau. The forest whose paths are of ash. Of fine stone. Ground down. Of black sand pathways crossed with the trails of slow worms. And of horses' hoofs. And of wild boar. And of our footprints now, too. Because it's too soft to ride a bike over we feel as if we too are descending in the catacombs of Koziyuko and wait for his ghostly hand to rise, to drag us under as we make our way along La Route de la Grande Vallee. Koziyuko, who had only his ghost left to bury. And so, this door, this simple door that allows entrance to a ghost and whose ghost makes the forest around here electric listen, the forest is singing with the kinetic energy of a ghost in a labyrinth who never stops pacing and who gives life up above. To slow worms, into dragonflies, into mosquitoes, into bees, to my flower and I, that day. What is the opposite of a plague, a benediction? What is the opposite of a curse, cause What is the opposite of a ghost, a corpse? Yet once you were all these things, I think, in this forest, your poor suffering body now separated into dragonfly, and slow worm, and dung beetle, and ashes, but also light, high light on the treetops and flowers. As though on a rack, not a cross. The same rack that deforms your heart now works on mine. As I feel myself, too, give way. In sorrow. For that day I'd received sad news, Kazuyoko. That my sister and her husband would separate. That my sister would be alone with her children. That my brother had threatened her husband with a hammer. But really it was a showerhead. he had turned up at his door after her husband had assaulted her. And told him that next time the hammer would speak. But it was only a showerhead. The head that he had grabbed on his way out was a makeshift weapon. I felt proud and sad when I heard this, when he called me on the phone that morning. Proud and sad because it was an echo of our father and his actions. Our father who art in heaven. And I walked through your forest, Kosyoko, With for my heart as heavy and as lonely as your own. all of the madness and sorrow of this world and everything we put each other through. And the pointlessness of it. The pointlessness that I knew truly was the point, the emptiness that I knew truly was you, God, you, Holy Ghost, you, Kozyuko, you who are the patron saint of the torn apart, and I walk through your forest, ankle deep in your ashes, again, on that day, and my sorrows are heavier, and my sister is long dead, and her husband forgotten, and my brother estranged, and my heart too, in another country, hidden, deep. In a forest, in another summer, cause and on the way back, on the forest path, we pass a stone on which is engraved a primitive church, a simple house, and the sign of a heart.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of like feeling the presence of the dead and sort of channeling the dead, because I think it sort of it feeds into a lot of um, what's going on in uh, in Monument Maker. Um, some people might think that that is, let's say. A literary way of expressing a certain imaginative experience that you have. Or they might interpret it as you saying that literally the voices of people who once lived and have now died are passing through you. And I suppose my question is, is that a distinction you recognize between those two states or are they Perhaps coming back to the quote we had from Jung of whatever acts is actual,
1: are they almost one and the same thing? I think the dead speak, but they speak in stories. And the stories mm-hmm. come through... I try to get myself out of the way as much as possible, but inevitably I am their building blocks. In a way, the poet Jack Spicer, who's one of my absolute heroes of all time, one of my favourite poets, and just my favourite thinkers, mm-hmm. and, and I feel very close to Jack Spicer. And Jack Spicer talks about how, with his poetry, he it was the equivalent of a Martian going into a room and being given 26 building blocks with the letters and the alphabet on it and then trying to tell a story through that alphabet. <laughs> in a way, I am that alphabet that the dead are trying to tell a story through. So they will appeal to the things that I like. Or so my my taste may be felt. I try to get it out as much as possible, but they will use these things to build the story. So they're not actually speaking the words of the story, but they are speaking through me in a way that I'm trying to translate rhythmically, energetically, in terms of the story yeah, they're speaking through me, and I do believe it was the dead. I do not believe there's, it's. I, I'm not. I'm not really using this as a metaphor, really, because one of the things that blew my mind and made me very upset was that I had never. I and I. I'd never thought about this, but when when we were much younger, uh, my my grand's uh, husband um, went down in a in a boat uh, during the evacuation of Crete. And uh, he 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 was only on the boat because they had to take two volunteers off our boat, and he got the, the, the stub, Went on there; it was torpedoed. The boat went down. His body was never found. Uh, my gran was obsessed when we were young that he that he would that he would return. She was convinced that he'd mm. lost his memory, and he was in Europe somewhere, and he would return. And if we ever had a dream of, of William. um, She would all say, "What's he saying? What's he looking like?" And we'd be looking for omens. He's okay. He's coming home, or something like that. And then I remembered when we were kids, we went to uh, uh, Crete on a holiday, and my grand said, "You need to try and find the memorial to the ship." Everyone went, "His name will be on it." So we tried to find the memorial, but our 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 language was really bad, and this taxi driver took us to marinas instead, and so we never found the memorial. And so. When we told my grand that we never found the memorial, she smiled and she said, "That's because there isn't one because he's still alive." So she went hmm. to her grave, believing that William is still alive. I totally believe it or not, I had totally forgotten this. I was a young kid when all this happened. My grand, my grand, died in the nineteen nineties, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, the whole thing about even, you know, what in, uh, in the book, one of the guys comes, but it goes down in creek, but survives, but he's horribly disfigured, and eventually has his face rebuilt and it uh, completes com- like, like another man, and he returns home and remarries his wife again. And Frater Jim, he's called Frater Jim, and he says, I've come to turn his, to, to unite all true loves, to bring back all the disappeared and turn history to dust. Mm-hmm. And I le- realised that literally, that's what I had come to do. And that's what I had done. Mm-hmm. I had actually returned William. I mean, I feel moved when I talk about it. I'd returned William to, to my gran with a new face for her childhood sweetheart. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't realised I'd done it till I finished the book. And I was so moved that I realised that I had been that the dead had used me in a way, or I was capable, they, yeah. they knew I was capable of it, and so they used me to bring yeah. to reunite all true loves and to turn history to dust. It was an incredibly moving moment, but when I say it was the dead, it was literally the dead. And thank god that I wasn't fully aware of it, it was, was, was over in a way, you know, because yeah. I don't know if I could have stood it. But now, you know, I'm a pretty rational guy on the whole. I mean, I'm quite an earthy person, but now I, I believe in anything after this experience. Uh-huh. I believe ghosts, I believe there's, I believe there's. Contact with the dead. I, yeah, I believe the dead are here right now. It's,
0: it's we'll been a to, We'll definitely come on to ghosts in a minute, but I just want to stick with this idea because that's. I. It's really interesting to hear that um, that that sort of section was in some way sort of founded in, in fact and founded in your history because I think it's true. Like you say, you brought William home to your gran, but in a sense, you also brought him home to yourself as well. There's almost like this kind of um you know this was kind of a loose thread in your personal history as well which Mm -hmm. the which the book is in some way contending with and not necessarily sort of tying in a knot at the end but like at least sort of at least engaging with and at least sort of becoming part of um yeah sort of it's, it's it's a strand from your life and there's one moment uh in the um in the book where one of one of the characters asks, "Is it possible to paint anything that isn't a self-portrait?" <laughs> um, and obviously, at the beginning of this book, we meet a, a you know a somebody whose initials are DK. Uh, there's so, you know, some, there's references to uh, a David Keenan who translated um, this book by Pierre Melville, and yet you know this is not by any measure what would generally be considered a work of auto-fiction. but as I was reading, a part of me wondered if perhaps our definition of autofiction uh, is in some way kind of too too narrow. Is all fiction autofiction? Like when when you when you look at Monument Maker, do you see it
1: as a self portrait in some way? Well, I think you can recognise it as being written by David Keenan. You know, I mean, I think, mm. you know, yes, I think to a certain extent that quote was really good. And again, that quote just came to me and I laughed when it came to me. Actually, and I thought that's quite a good one. I mean, it's hard to argue against that. But everyone has a fingerprint. And why do you want to read your favourite author? Because you recognise him and always works, no matter how diverse it is. And I mean, I've mm. kind of I've kind of hit every genre you could probably hit in Monument Maker mm. from like historic to historic fiction to science fiction to translating poetry even and all this sort of stuff, but I'm sure it probably does still read like David Keenan. And obviously mm-hmm. I play with that a little bit with the DK in the first bit and I understand you're probably getting one of my boots because you like my style or you like my writing and stuff or that and you're going to get me there. But I do try to get out of the way as much as possible. And an interesting mm-hmm. thing is that I don't think just because you like this as a memorial device does not mean you're going to like monument maker. You know what I mean? I I, I realise I'm pushing it harder here. The first two books I wrote, the thing that joins, going back to your point there as well, the thing that joins all my books, I think, is I write with a sense of gratitude always. Mm-hmm. I've been very grateful for the life that I've been gifted and I've been incredibly grateful for the people that have loved me and that I've loved and that I've spent time with. I've had a remarkable life and without going into too much of the madness, a really unique markup, crazy life just from when how I was born when I was a kid who I was brought up with. the the things I witnessed I I knew it was magical even when I was in a small town and that's how when I was growing up in Eardry I was so aware of the magic that I'd been gifted that I knew I would write in gratitude a book about small Scottish towns and how they were beautiful and romantic and not rough and full of arms and also because of my dad who who was a Republican from Belfast from a Republican family during the Troubles and their incredible language and and their incredible love that they had and the faith they had and words and telling stories I knew I would write their story because it was so beautiful but after that I had no more ideas I didn't have an idea of another book and after that I mm-hmm. really stopped really thinking up or even I, I went in all those two books with, with subject matter that was all I didn't plot or plan mm-hmm. but I knew what subject matter was after from Ex to Beth and certainly with Monument Maker when I was writing those books there was no clear path but I was still writing in gratitude because as you say I realized that there were other aspects perhaps in my family that I had to say thank you for as well and that I had to other aspects of the dead or in my past that I had to somehow redeem before I could move on, you know. I had to build my ship of death. And in a way, all artists' catalog certainly writers, is their ship of death. You know, and, and I think yeah. all my books are one are are now looking like and will be they all take place in one fictional universe. I would say, and they're all a multi part installment of the one thing, basically. You know, because mm. uh, memorial device for the good times and Next all there are there are tunnels to all of those books directly. in Monument Maker, you can access all of those books through that as well. And I realize I'm doing mm. one of these great things I always loved, like you know Malcolm Lowry's Voyage That Never yeah, yeah. Ends, Jack Kerouac's Doolow's Legend. I realize that's what mm. I'm involved with, definitely at this point. Yeah.
0: There's um you mentioned the um the kind of uh use of various different genres um i i, I feel a bit i don't really shouldn't have really used the word use because that makes it sound in some way kind of utilitarian and i don't mm-hmm. i don't it doesn't read like that it doesn't read like you're right saying hey it would be interesting to write sci-fi here or no, useful or cool or anything like that, that. um it feels instead that you're so the, sort of these are the sort of the necessary paths that you need to uh, to explore in order to to make the book do what you want the book to do to make the book have the effect you want it to to have and indeed at a moment um one of the, one of the characters is remarkable that I won't be able to get into the context of this without sort of <laughs> going on for about half an hour <laughs> but um he, uh, you'll you'll know the bit I'm talking about where he says a smart move to enter. Uh, the literary subterranea via genre. Yeah, uh, the place is riddled with secret pathways and yawning chasms and mysterious openings that are stranger than fiction itself. Yeah. And that struck me as a very sort of revealing phrase about what the sort of the Monument Maker project could be actually. Like you are there's some, there's really a sense that sort of these are the these are the routes through which you, David Keenan, the writer, are able to sort of to to construct the. literary monument the literary subterranean that you're yeah
1: i came in via genre because it was critically Mm -hmm. unpoliced you know what mm-hmm. I mean? I've always liked that idea and I've always been a huge fan of John where I think you can get away with a lot in science fiction and stuff like that. You can't get away with normal literature. So I'm such a huge fan of sci-fi and it was the first mm-hmm. uh, literature that really blew my mind and it's still very, very close to my heart. But I never thought I would be writing it particularly. But then, yes, one of the things was I had to, I, and, and I wasn't conscious of that. This is why it blows your mind when you finish, when you finish your book because I was like, well, obviously I wanted to create a, a sense of timelessness. I keep talking in the book, at the, in the first section of the timelessness that's at the heart of the cathedral Mm -hmm. the nebula you know this at the time was not and if I was and what I did I didn't realize that I actually had one set in the future on the moon in a science fiction Mm -hmm. I had one set in the past during the siege of Khartoum none of these things occurred to me I was not conscious Mm -hmm. of these things when I sat back at the end I was like bang wow of course I had to have something in the future of course I had to have a historic weapon in the past of course I had to have something in the present you know that was kind of mind-blowing to me and then the other thing is that you know, literally when we get to the final section as above, so below, Sons of the Desert, um, at one point, one of the characters is literally manifesting itself as punctuation and is pursuing Mm -hmm. another character via the page as you're reading it, the punctuation is running. And when you get to that section, you start to realise that there are tunnels quite deliberately dug beneath this book. There are entrance Mm -hmm. and exit points. At one point, um, Hildegard von Stroth literally uh, takes Maximilian Rayburg by the feet textually and lowers them down, down, drops them down an empty page into a hole so that he can reappear somewhere else in the book. And all this sort of stuff just started happening because I felt the tunnels open as I was writing and I felt the sections connecting themselves in all sorts Mm -hmm. of really, really odd ways. And believe me, to this day, because I reread Monument Maker all the time, to this day, I am still discovering happy, Echoes and links and 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 entrances and mm-hmm. exits to tunnels. I I could never have put there uh, uh, consciously. It's really mm-hmm. wild. There's um. It's interesting you mentioned that as kind of the the book as the kind of
0: the physical object, the kind of the codex, because that's something that struck me as very important when I when I was reading the book. So I started reading it. I, I was sent a um a PDF to begin with. So I started reading it on a tablet, which in a certain kind of lexical way is quite um, quite appropriate but um <laughs> it was when i i finally received the book that i realized it actually had to be properly experienced as a printed object in some way like there was there was something um there was something about the book that required the the sort of the physical exertion of holding and reading um, uh, a book, a sizable book, like having it on a, having it on an iPad, you'd get the same words, but in some way it wasn't quite going to, going to cut it. Now I remember one of the final events I did before COVID was with, um, Lucy Ellman. Um, and so her, her, you know, 1000 page one sentence, uh, ducks Newbury port.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and yeah. I remember reading it and getting a kind of, you know, a crick in my neck, which I still have from time to time. I'd like trying to find the, the, correct position where I could comfortably read for for any length of time and it felt in a way like an act of devotion in some way some (laughs) sort of like religious act and I had exactly the same experience once I finally had the the book of Monument Maker in my hands and on top of that as you say there's this kind of engagement with the book as object within the text itself Mm-hmm. um so i'm just curious is that something again that was sort of uh in the front of your mind when you were working on it like you sort of did you have a sense of the the object that this book would become and how readers might engage with it that way
1: yeah i definitely went forming form and content to align so i mm-hmm. was looking for a big sort of tree, a large biblical kind of form i wanted to do that i was definitely writing to get to that kind of scale as well yeah and i like um I like the focus on the, the talismanic object that, that kind of radiates and vibrates a little mm-hmm. bit as well. And one of the way I use those tunnels and things through literature is to try and make the book like an entity. Like, like you know, one the whole idea that at one point, there's, a, there's some lines about, do you think... When books are closed, they dream. And he began to think, Has anyone ever read the same book? Because he starts talking about The Outsider by Albert Camus, but he remembers all these different things that actually happen in in the book, and then he remembers it with a different title. It's called The Outlandish Night, I think. And and I began to wonder, Does anyone ever read the same book? And so I began to realize, Not only that, but books are in conversation with other books. Because as a reader, as a voracious reader, and as a writer, then you're constantly in conversation with all the books you've read as well. And, you know, mm. I think about Malcolm Lowry almost every day of my life. I've got a mm. big connection with yeah, that dude. Yeah. And um, Under the Volcano is one of the books that's haunted my wife, And so I like to dig tunnels from my books, sometimes even using a couple of words or a paraphrase or some words around the wrong way or, or a bracket that, that provides ingress. I believe if you echo those things in their book, that's like a trapdoor or something that you can drop down into the subterranean of all literature mm. and then po- literally pop up in another book. So I like to lay those traps, those little trap doors there throughout because I want my book to be able to be in conversation, to have all these little nodes, these net, create these networks with all the other books that I care about and love. So I can't help but drop those little secret things in there. There are plenty of them to find if you're a reader as well, you know, and mm-hmm. I wouldn't do it self-consciously. I would just, I would just realize that that's what had to be done at that moment because suddenly Malcolm would come into my head. I would realize I'm coming mm-hmm. up on something that might be a paraphrase and I'd I would flip it a little bit, you know. I, I love doing that. I love doing that. And also, a way in and out of all my novels. You know, I think if you go mm-hmm. back to earlier novels and you read them in the Light of Monument Maker as well, there's other stuff going on. There's a whole section near the end which is actually a paraphrased section straight from For the Good Times. It's just mm-hmm. quite radically paraphrased. And I wanted to drop that in there as well because that's the trapdoor that drops you into my second novel, you know. And then extra to Beth comes back as well and all that sort of stuff. I love all that. Yeah, I love yeah. all that. It's also I mean books can also
0: do that thing which um I mean perhaps other media are capable of it in in different ways, but the books can do this thing with time, which is so so crucial to sort of to to monument maker this kind of this understanding of narrative time, the kind of the the forward flow of time, but also the kind of the the reversibility of time the 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 capacity of sort of being able to jump from one point in time to another, like sort of plunging through, through the pages, as you, Mm. as you mentioned. And I I can't think of another medium that is capable of so much kind of flexibility and so much kind of gymnastics as the, as the book for, um, for, for unsettling, I guess, our, um, our concept of time. um, and as I said, the uh, the concept of time is so crucial to, uh, to Monument Maker, particularly this sense of being able potentially to move through it uh, in two different directions, sort of backwards and forwards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that became such an important part of the book because, based on what you said earlier about the kind of the direction in which you wrote it,
1: in that you sort of, you wrote the end first, and then worked your way back. No, I think um, I, I think this is a, a something that I've tried to do with all of my books is provide multiple ingress and exit points. Uh, mm. Memorial Device each chapter could be read standalone. Again, you could read Memorial Device backwards because the appendices. Gave you information that if you'd known when you started, would have made a the di- difference if you'd gone through it backwards. Mm. If you only found yeah, out yeah, it yeah. in one linear way. For the good times was locked in an Ouroboros. It began mm-hmm. and it ended with a colon, and it it, it ended with the with the, with the writer with the main character boasting, no, saying, revealing what his superpower was, and he claimed the mm-hmm. superpower was forgetting. But then he very quickly yeah. says but wait till I tell you. And he realises he's forgetting. As a superpower, you cannot forget and he begins to tail all over again. So you're, you're trapped in, in, in For the Good Times in terms of that. Ex to Beth, again, Ex to Beth can be read backwards. It can be jumped into at the middle and it can be read in sections. Mm-hmm. Monument Maker 2, book one, two, three, you can read them as standalone books like the Cartoon Siege. It's a standalone book if you want it. The Science Fiction Victory Garden standalone book. Frat or Jim, if you want to go that way, mm-hmm. but they are all linked. And if you read them together, you will get something else. But I, I like, to, I, I just, as you say, you can do so much with time and not just with form with books. And it's kind of mad that people don't do more. And when you do do they call you an experimental author. I just feel like I'm just playing. I'm just having all the fun you can have with literature. It's there for mm-hmm. you. You know, I i don't, I don't think of my books as difficult. I think the challenge yeah. is, is, is sometimes a time-based thing because, um, it's the sort of book that you need to immerse yourself in and spend time in. Short little bursts here and here are not going to do it. You need to submit mm. to it a certain bit. And so it does demand of your attention in terms of that. And I know in these attention strap times that is an even bigger ask. Never mind something on the scale of this. So it's been quite amazing and refreshing to me. That, and I always say, never like um, never undervalue or underestimate your readers. You know, and mm-hmm. this has been absolutely amazing because the readers are coming to it and they are actually giving themselves that kind of attention. And it's all about time. I spent 10 years on it myself. I live within this mm-hmm. book. It is a long, long term thing and it's a working in time, but it's also an attempt to create a feeling of timelessness. You know, mm-hmm. I would like you when you're reading the book to have the same feeling that you are when you're in a cathedral, a silent cathedral on your own that you have somehow stepped out of time. You know, and then you're in a yeah, presence of something yeah. sacred, something holy that is outside of time. It's also like it's, um, you know, asking a
0: reader in a sense to read any book is quite a big ask. I mean, like to sort of there's this, you know, it's a commitment of time and you're going to hope that the reader is going to get something out of it. But like the impression we get with Monument Maker is that you are you are pulling out all of the stops in order <laughs> that the reader can get as much as it from uh, as much from it as possible, which is not to say, you know, there's no sense that like you're writing for Kind of like readily plaudits as well. This is very much a book which, uh, you know, I think uh, even though it's nice to receive the compliments, I kind of get the sense that, you know, the good reviews or the bad, bad reviews, it's kind of, it's, there's a certain sort of, the book itself is sort of indifferent to, uh, yeah, to this situation. 100%. I
1: totally agree with that. But, yeah. Um, I mean.
0: But one thing um, that I think the Monument Maker definitely does kind of, um, yeah, sort of repay the reader is in this kind of the sense of time as you say because it does it does require a commitment it does require an engagement of you know X amount of hours. but the canvas it sort of opens out it's sort of like it's almost like it, it affords the reader more time. it sort of like expands the universe to such yeah. a point that it, you're sort of once once you come out of it you can almost have
1: no sense of how much time you spent in it at all. Well, see, I want it to be an experience. The point mm-hmm. of the book is not to get to the end of the book and then say, ah, so what happened was, frat or jam, but you know what I mean? I don't, it's not a book I want you to solve. I don't want you, once you've finished it, to, to you're not waiting for it to end to get the point of yeah, it. Yeah. I want you to be experiencing it as you're going. I want it to be something that you can step into, that everything else can disappear and you can experience uh, an experience of timelessness. When you're in there you know and you can access all i want i want you to sort of travel we tr- literally travel through different worlds through different ethers almost you know and i want every time you do that to step into the book and the experience all of that to be the point of the book you know mm-hmm. not the figuring out of the, of the narrative of the story you can do that And i think one review said maybe on your th- probably on your third reading because you can put it together and there is a lot of fun to be had there. We all like to figure out all these mad books and, and there's a lot of fun to be had there. But the point is not that. The point is to deliver an experience, yeah. a, a reader experience where the words, well, the words are destroyed. At one point, I think that they say, like, I, I am the destroyer of words. Literally, mm-hmm. I want it to be that. I want the words to be gone. I want this lucidity that goes beyond text on text, you know, which is why I keep trying to open it up, dig wormholes, divert you elsewhere and things. Like and I'm trying to distract you from the fact that you're reading a book. You know, but you yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. And we think a book at its best. That's what it's like. It's
0: back to that idea as well. Like you talk of this sense of sort of figuring it out. Uh, it's back to that idea of like two people will never read the same book. So if sort of even if two people both think they figured out Monument Maker, chances are they'll have figured it out um, very differently from each other.
1: Yeah, I would say. So, well, I'm also very influenced by William Blake and I think that one of the rules, Michael McClure would always say that William Blake is alive right now is that red war car outside in the street and it's absolutely true. Uh-huh. And one of the reasons that Blake is alive as he ever was is his 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 art is literally bottomless. It is fathomless mm. because there's no bottom to get to and also it's alive. His characters uh, morph. His characters morph into different characters and stand for different things because mm-hmm. his, his system is literally energy and delight and it's his own system and I'm very much I very much model myself after Blake in terms of that, of trying to create energetic systems that stay alive Mm -hmm. and that are bottomless and so become these entities, you know? And they have their own life at that point, you know? And you're really interacting with another life form. That's how you think of it when you're interacting with a great, but you're interacting with another life form, literally, you know? And a life form that's coming to you from a timeless place, you know? Mm -hmm. Which is imagination speaking, which is exactly what Blake says.
0: Yeah, 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 David. We are running out of time, but one thing I wanted to talk to you about, and it's sort of in a weird way, kind of bringing it back to down to earth in the kind of after the conversation that we've had. But the book opens in France, and there's a lot of France in it, and it would be kind of remiss of me, as uh, you know, speaking to you from France, not to uh, talk about it a little bit. Now, I found. It very very funny on France actually. Like there's some of the some of the reflections on certain French habits and certain and certain French ways, um, really really resonated. Um, but they resonated also because it was an. Inv- there's a certain ribbing to it, but a certain sort of affectionate ribbing. Like it really feels. Uh, I think you might have said this yourself. Like it's almost like a sort of a love letter to France.
1: Absolutely, it, it totally, utterly is a lovely out of France. I'm in love. My two favorite countries in the world are France and Mexico. They're the two mm-hmm. places I love the most. My, they're my, they're my, my, where my soul and my heart is. Um, I actually completed uh, Monument Maker, the first section, which I completed last. I actually completed that annual de France. Um, hmm. In Grace or Loire, I was on a, a Robert Louis Stevenson fellowship, which was kind of mind blowing. This is how this book fell into place. I was writing about the, the cathedral, I was becoming very interested in the Cathedral of the de France, and I knew I wanted to set my final section there. And I'm not really good at looking or finding this sort of stuff. And my wife said to me, Have you seen this? Um, robert louis stevenson fellowship you can apply to in you know, the france i was like what the actual fuck <laughs> and, I, and i applied and i got it it was completely insane next thing you know i'm cycling around the, the cathedrals of france that i was writing about it it was completely mind-blowing so i completed it there and um i think that's when my love affair with, with france specifically rural france fell into place mm-hmm. and uh, me and my wife have returned there so many times since then and um it's just the french way of life their absolute commitment to um the good things in life long lunches mm-hmm. good wine literature taking your time just uh the effortless style it, it taught me a lot about how i wanted to live myself and it really was life changing when me and my wife visited france we came back and we really we really did say we're changing our life a little bit and we're committing mm-hmm. ourselves more to living like that no matter where we are it really had that marvelous effect on us and um and i love so much of french literature i mean my French is awful, but I did. One of the things that I was most pleased about or that kind of most blew my mind was I am a huge fan of the, 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 the poet Pierre Reverde. He's probably yeah. my favourite religious poet. And I just, I, I, I translated three of his poems uh, for the book um, God knows why. It just came to me that I had to translate three Pierre Reverde po- poems at Ham. But I really loved it. And the amazing thing was we had to run them past the Committee of because they need to sanction them and say they're happy with them. And they sanctioned all three of the poems. And it was like kind of one of the greatest moments of my life, you know what I mean? To sort of be in that kind of company of like Pierre Reverde and the Committee of And after falling so hard for France, it was really amazing. But yes, as you say, there's a huge part of the Monument Maker, which is a, a love letter to all aspects of-, of France completely and
0: that's again that's another example of the dead kind of uh in this case placing their hand on your shoulder and saying you know you got this
1: (laughs) yeah yeah literally as well it's so so uncanny and also writing in gratitude as well my experience in france was so beautiful as well and so i memorialized that also yeah
0: well let's get you back over here as soon as uh (laughs) as soon as it's feasible Um, please David, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Monument Maker is, of course, available from the Shakespeare and Company uh, website and your local independent bookstore. So do pick up, make sure you pick up a copy. I think it's probably come across uh, in this conversation. What a wild, incredible, uh, potentially life-changing book, I find it. So many congratulations wow. to you for writing it. Um, many, Much kudos to uh, Lee and everyone at White Rabbit Books for publishing it. And uh, all that remains for me to say is David Keenan, Thanks for joining
1: us today. Thank you so much, Adam. I really, really enjoyed that. It was a blast.
0: You have been listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Links to the books discussed in this episode are available in the show notes, alongside information about how to become a friend of Shakespeare and Company. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating it wherever you listen. The intro and outro music is Mr. Ginger by the brilliant Alex Fryman, available on his album Play It Gentle. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for listening.